How obvious is it that God is real? You don't have to answer it out loud, but think in your mind, how obvious is it that God is real? Can someone go through life and truly have a good reason for disbelieving in God? Okay, think about that. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. If you enjoy this episode, and this is something that you want to take further, you want to take your learning further, you have got to know about the Hammer and Anvil Society. This is the semi-secretive learning fellowship of the Think Institute. That's the organization that runs this outfit. And the Hammer and Anvil Society consists of a cohort of brothers who are on the same journey together And along with the cohort calls, there is a ton of resources. We've got online learning courses that you can take, and then we discuss them. Next up is going to be our family leadership and discipleship course. Now, if today's episode interests you, you are not going to want to miss that course. If you want to learn more about the Hammer and Anvil Society, because this course is only open to Hammer and Anvil Society members, I'm going to tell you how you can join at the end of this episode. All right, well, I would like to tell you a story. One day, a businessman arrived in a small village and he made an announcement that in one week's time, he would be, there would be an exhibition of an animal. And there was a catch. The animal would be kept in a dark room so that the people who would come to experience the animal could touch it, but they couldn't see it. And so the anticipation in the town grew, and when the big day came, the man set up his tent, and people lined up, and the line was down the block, around the corner. People really wanted to experience this animal. And the first four people, four men, bought their tickets, and they went into the room, totally dark, and they started reaching out their hands and and touching the animal. And the first man, uh, the first man, felt one part of the animal, it was his leg. And he said, oh, I see, this animal is like a tree trunk. It feels like a a sturdy, round tree trunk. The second man pushed against the animal's side, which was big and broad, and he said, no, no, this animal is more like a wall. This animal is just like a wall. The third man felt the long, pointed tusk of the animal, and he said, No, this animal is more like a spear. I don't know what you're talking about. And finally, the fourth man felt the animal's long nose, and he said, you're all wrong. This animal is just like a fat snake. Well, at just that moment, the janitor came in, and he didn't realize that the exhibition was going on, so he flipped on the light switch. And all of a sudden, all four of the men gasped and said, oh, it's an elephant. The truth was staring them right in the face, but they just needed someone to turn on the light for them so they could see it clearly. That is what we're talking about in today's passage. We're going to see how the truth was staring people right in the face, but they were groping about in the dark needlessly until someone flipped on the light and let them see the truth. So our passage today is going to really help us out. Here's how our passage is going to help us. We all have people in our lives who don't know the Lord. 
We have people in our lives who don't know the truth and who don't believe the message of God's word. They don't even believe that this is God's word. And so the challenge that we face as followers of Christ is, what do we share with people like that? People who don't believe in the Bible. How are we going to communicate with them the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, when they say that they don't believe that God is there or that this is his word? The idea of sharing our faith in that kind of situation and let alone defending our faith against objections can feel very daunting. Have you ever felt that way? It feels scary to figure out what to talk about. Well, this passage is really gonna help us and the Apostle Paul is gonna show us what to do. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and we're gonna be looking at verses 16 through 32. Acts chapter 17 Verses 16 through 32. Okay, now, a little backstory on this. Two weeks ago, we looked at how the Apostle Paul and a couple of his friends, Silas and Timothy, were in an area called Berea. And they preached the gospel until they started getting persecuted there. And then Paul left and he went down to Athens. Now our story is going to pick up. We're going to find out what Paul did when he was in Athens. So this is Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, Oh, and I'm reading from the ESV as well. So if your version's a little different, that's okay. Same word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, He commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and some men, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Now, here is the big idea that I think that God has for us this morning. Biblical truth destroys unbelief, disbelief. Biblical truth destroys disbelief. Now, when it comes to disbelief, there are three supports that prop up disbelief. Three things that prop up and support disbelief. Let me tell you what they are. One, delusions. These are the misconceptions, the misunderstandings that we have about God. We think God is not really who he is. There's something we misunderstand about him. And those misunderstandings prop up our disbelief. Two is defenses. Defenses. These are our excuses, our reasons for not believing our arguments. We don't have enough evidence. We're not convinced, that sort of thing. And third is despair. Despair over all the evil in the world. We look out at the world and we say, there's so much pain, there's so much suffering in life. How can God truly be good? And that supports disbelief. So delusions, defenses, and despair. And we're gonna see all three of those supports propping up the disbelief of the Athenians in this passage. And what we're gonna see is that biblical truth destroys our delusions, defenses, and despair. Biblical truth destroys disbelief. So let's walk through the story and let's see how it teaches that biblical truth destroys disbelief. All right, look at verse 16 again. First, we see that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he was walking through Athens. Athens was an extremely religious city. Really superstitious is what they were. The historian Pliny, an ancient historian who lived around this time, wrote that in those days, get this, Athens contained over 3,000 public statues, as well as a countless number of lesser statues and images that were in private homes. The vast majority of these 3,000 statues were statues of gods and goddesses, demigods and heroes from Greek and Roman mythology. In one street in Athens, there was a pillar, a square pillar in front of every single house on the street with a statue of the god Hermes on it. Every gateway had its own protector god. Every porch had its own protector god. Every street, every square, every neighborhood had its own sanctuaries, its own little places of worship. One Roman poet remarked that in Athens, it was easier to find gods than men. The city was full of idols and idolatry. Now, Paul loved the Lord. And you can imagine how he felt as he was walking through Athens, seeing all these images of false gods. His heart was provoked within him. So he started in the synagogue. 
He went, he found the Jewish community as he always did when he went to a new place. And he went in and he started reasoning with them in the synagogue. And he was telling them about the Lord Jesus and about Christ's resurrection from the dead and about the coming day of judgment. Now, he wasn't just in the synagogue, he was also walking in the streets and he was talking to the God-fearing Gentiles, those were Gentiles who believed in the one true God. And he would also go into the marketplace and just talk with whoever he found there, whoever he chanced upon. And as he was talking, we see in verse 18 then that the Epicureans and the Stoics heard about him and they started chatting with him. Who are these people, the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, Epicureans were followers of Epicurus. And they believed in the gods, but they denied that the gods had any influence or interference in human life. They were essentially, they were functionally atheists. We're on our own in this world. That's what they believed. They actually believed that the world was formed by chance, by a chance random collision of atoms. I know some people who believe that same thing today, come to think of it. They believed that we were here by chance, that we were on our own, and for them, there really was no afterlife. This life was all there was. So they said that the highest good was seeking pleasure. And for them, they were, in Paul's day, they were gross sensualists. Pleasure was their highest good. On the other hand, the Stoics believed similarly, but also different. They did believe in God. They believed that God had started this world in existence, but many of them actually believed that this world was God. They were called pantheists. They believed that everything was God. And they believed in fate, that you could not escape your fate. They believed that the soul, uh, that they disbelieved that the soul would live on as an individual after death. And they believed that virtue was its own reward. They didn't think pleasure or pain was good or evil, that you, but you should still be virtuous. And these are the philosophers that brought Paul together and started talking with him. And it's funny, they called Paul a babbler. Now the word for babbler here, it's translated babbler or, or something similar in your Bibles. The word is, in the original language, it's seed picker. Why seed picker? Because in the marketplaces in Athens, there would be these little birds, these little gutter birds, and they would go from gutter to gutter, picking up little scraps of trash, and they'd pick it up, and they'd pick it up over here, and they'd deposit it over there. And this term, seed picker, became, became the term that people would use for someone who would pick up an idea over here and bring it over here. He was sort of a... a a trash collector of ideas. That's what they're accusing Paul of being, a babbler. Not really saying anything important, but we wanna hear what he has to say anyway. They disbelieved what Paul was saying, but Paul is about to show them the power of the truth, of biblical truth, in destroying that disbelief. They misunderstood Paul's preaching. They thought that Paul was preaching foreign divinities or deities. This is funny. Paul was talking about Jesus, and he was talking about the resurrection. In Greek, the word for resurrection, this is the language that they spoke, the, the word for res resurrection is anastasis. It's where we get our name Anastasia from. They thought that Paul was preaching a, a new deity named Jesus and a new goddess named Anastasia or Anastasis. They thought that Paul was preaching these new gods and they'd never heard of these gods before, and they're all about it. They loved hearing new ideas, so they thought, okay, tell us about these new gods. Come on, seed picker. Come on, babbler. Let's hear it. What are these new crazy gods you're talking about? So they brought him to 
the Areopagus because they wanted to get to the bottom of this. The Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, was this very big, uh, prominent outcropping of rock there in Athens. It's still there to this day. And in Athens, in the Areopagus, on the Areopagus, was a court that would meet, the council of the Areopagus, and they would settle all of the religious disputes in the city. This was a majorly influential court, uh, council. If you've ever heard of the philosopher Socrates, who lived hundreds of years prior to this, this was the council that condemned Socrates to death. So the fact that Paul is being called before the Areopagus, not a small deal. This is a major deal that Paul is being called before them. But they want to understand Paul's new ideas. These Athenians loved hearing and telling new ideas. That's, all, that's how they spent their time. Which sounds silly to us, but is it really that silly to us? Think about how you greet someone that you haven't seen in a while. What do we say? What's new? Hey, what's new? How many times do we check the news on our phones? We love new ideas too. We're not that different from the ancient Athenians, are we? What's new? That's what they wanted to know. They wanted to know about these new ideas. Yet for all their new ideas, they were still ignorant. They were still in disbelief. And Paul was about to show them this. So they're looking at verses 22 and 23. The apostle Paul tells them, he greets them, and he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul is pointing out their devotion because he's about to show them that while it's good to have devotion, their devotion and their worship is actually misguided. He's drawing attention to the fact that human beings are worshipers by nature. And that was very true in Athens. It's true in our society as well today. Paul says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What is that about? An altar to the unknown God. There's history here. 600 years before this date, there had been a plague, a disease that was running rampant through Athens. And the Athenians had no idea what to do. So they called in this philosopher, this very wise man named Epimenides. Epimenides lived in, in an, another land. He was from Crete. But they brought him in to try to help solve the problem. And Epimenides came up with this solution. He said, take sheep, black sheep and white sheep, and let them loose in the city. And wherever they stop and sit down and rest, figure out who the patron god of that area is and slaughter the sheep, sacrifice the sheep at that spot to the god of that spot. And maybe we will appease whatever god is angry at us and we will stop this plague. So the Athenians had done this. They sacrificed these sheep all over the, the city, but there were some areas where they didn't know who the patron god was, so they sacrificed to an unknown god. And as they sacrificed to this unknown god, the plague stopped. So there had been this reputation, this legend for 600 years that the unknown god had stopped the plague in Athens. And to that very day, there was an altar standing there probably several altars actually, in Athens to this unknown God, giving him credit for stopping the plague, but stopping there, saying we don't know anything else about this God and we don't really want to know anything else about this God. Thanks for stopping the plague for us, but we'll keep you unknown. Really what the Athenians were doing was they were covering their bases. Kind of like today how some people believe in a higher power. 
but they don't get any more specific than that. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you've been that person. Maybe you're still that person today, in which case, keep listening. The Athenians were worshiping this unknown God, just in case. But then Paul says this, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now remember, Paul's, they said that Paul was proclaiming strange deities. Paul takes that word and he just owns it. I'm proclaiming strange deities, okay? I'll proclaim a deity to you, and you say you don't know him, I'm gonna tell you about him. Since you admit you don't know him, you have to listen to me and you can't contradict what I'm saying because you admit you don't know who he is. Paul is revealing the contradiction in the Athenians' thinking. Think about this. They have an altar to this unknown God. That means that they know he exists. They know that he ought to be worshiped. Otherwise, why do they have an altar to him? They know that he enjoys being worshiped and wants to be worshiped. Otherwise, why would they have an altar to him? They know that he is not one of the other gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. If he was, they wouldn't call him an unknown god. They would call him by whatever his name was. So he's a different god than the ones that they've been worshiping. They also know that this god is capable of stopping a plague. That means he has control over nature. They also know that this god is willing to stop plagues. That means that he loves them and wants to provide for them. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Are you starting to pick up on what's going on here? They're feeling about the elephant and they have all these attributes, but they still call this God unknown. Do you see the contradiction in their reasoning and their thinking? They have this altar to the unknown God, but they know all these things about this God. They call him unknown, but they sure seem to know a lot about him. In verses 24 and 25 then, Paul says, I'm gonna tell you about this unknown God. And he starts giving the attributes of this God. He starts boldly proclaiming biblical truth. He says that this is the God who made the world and everything in it. And by the way, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Now these Epicureans, they believe that the world was made by chance. The Stoics believed that the world was God. Paul looks both of them in the face and says, no, you're both wrong. There is a God and he created the world, and he is not identical to the world. This world was not created by chance. This world was created by our creator, your creator and mine. And he doesn't live in man-made temples. This God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not like your other gods, like Jupiter, Zeus, Athena. He is Lord of all of them, and guess what? He's not served by human hands. He does not need anything from us. A God who can stop a ravaging plague doesn't need anything from you or from me. Isn't it sad how we create gods in our image, gods that can be served by us? Have you ever gone into a restaurant where there's a little idol sitting out in front? I have. I actually went into one just the other day. There's an idol sitting out in front. Sometimes these idols will have little dishes of food or pieces of fruit in front of them as if the idol is going to reach down, pick it up, and eat it. But does that happen? No. The food sits there until it's just about to rot and then they change it up and put new food there. Our God is not like that. Our God does not need to be fed by us. Our God is not incapable of moving and working with his righteous right hand. He is not served by human hands. Paul says that the true God, the creator God, gives us life and breath and everything. Now, when Paul says this, he's echoing biblical truth from Isaiah 42, verses 5 and 8. Here's what it says. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Paul is delivering to to these Athenians strong, unapologetic, biblical truth. Paul is saying that God is sovereign over heaven and earth. And by the way, he's also sovereign over human history. He made every nation from one man, and he determined when and where each person would live. God's purpose was that that they would seek God, and perhaps they would even feel their way and find him. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, if God's purpose was for us to seek and find God, there's a lot of disbelief in the world. Does that mean that God failed? No, that's not Paul's point here. Here's Paul's point. God's plan was for people to feel around and find him, and guess what? They have found him. All men know God. That is the shocking message of this passage. Even these Athenians recognized that there was a God in heaven who was above them, who had stopped this plague, who loved them, who was master over nature, who was not one of their other gods, and yet they still called him the unknown God. Isn't that just like the human heart? We know God is there. We know that God gives us life and breath and everything, and that he's not anything else that we see in this world. And yet we we keep him at arm's length. We keep him at, at a distance. And we say we have all these great reasons for it, but Paul just destroys that disbelief with biblical truth. There is one God, and we all know him. And that is what Paul is revealing to the Athenians. That's why I love this passage. Paul points out the inconsistency in their belief. They were like men feeling the elephant in the dark room. They should have seen the truth. They should have just flicked the lights on and said, oh, it's an elephant. Oh, it's the Lord. But they didn't. So Paul is there to turn the lights on for them. From this moment on, these Athenians can no longer call him the unknown God. He is now known. He, because he has delivered to them biblical truth that destroyed their disbelief. So Paul drives the point home in verses 27 through 29. He says, he is not actually far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Now I love that Paul quotes this, this quote. Do you know where that quote comes from? an ancient philosopher named Epimenides. It was the very philosopher who had sacrificed to the unknown God to stop the plague. Paul stands in the city where the plague had been stopped by the unknown God and quotes the very philosopher who had sacrificed to the unknown God to stop the plague and says, even he knew that in him we live and move and have our being. You Athenians have no excuse. Then he goes on to quote two more of their poets, Aratus and Cleanthes, who both said, for we are indeed his offspring. Their own poets said, God is above us like a father to a son. We are his offspring. We are are lower than he is, and yet somehow still made in his image. Now, here's the twisted nature of the Athenian worship. They recognized that God was above, him, above them. They recognized that in him we live and move and have our being, but you know what they did? They took those truths, which are true, and they twisted them, and they attributed that to idols, to Jupiter, Zeus, these false gods. Paul is looking them in the face and saying, you should have known better. You know these 
fault these gods Zeus you you don't have your being in Zeus in Jupiter you know better than that there's only one God in heaven above all in him we live and move and have our being have you ever studied ancient Greek philosophy or mythology those gods are not almighty those gods are not all loving and all good they should have known better God is above all those so-called gods. They were being totally inconsistent. So Paul has turned the lights on, and now in verses 30 and 31, he calls them to repentance and faith. He says, God overlooked the times of ignorance, the times of unknowing, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. They can no longer call this God the unknown God. He wasn't unknown anymore. He never should have been unknown to them in the first place. And then Paul adds urgency to his message by saying that God has fixed a day of judgment. Now, the Stoics and the Epicureans did not believe in a judgment day. That was one thing they had in common. They did not believe. They thought history was going to go on forever, possibly in a great big timeline loop. Paul says, no, history is going somewhere, and there will be a judgment day. And God is going to judge the whole world by one man. Well, Paul, who's this man that's going to judge the world? Paul says, he's the man that God raised from the grave. God gave proof that there would be a judgment day, there will be a judgment day, and that his own son is going to judge the world by raising his son from the dead. That man, Jesus, rose in the middle of history to show that history is going somewhere. And that one day, all of us will give an account to him. So there is great urgency in what Paul is preaching here. And Paul's words were highly significant there on Mars Hill. He is smashing all their disbelief. When Mars Hill had been founded hundreds of years ago, according to the mythology, there was a god named Apollo who stood on Mars Hill and actually declared that, here's what he said, Apollo, supposedly. Here's what he said. When the dust drinks up a man's blood, once he has died, there is no resurrection. Apollo, the false god, falsely declared that the, re- that the resurrection would never happen. Paul, thousands of years later, stands on that very hill and says, Apollo, you're a false god, you're wrong, my God's real, and my God says there will be a resurrection. Yes. And what could the Athenians say to this? No, you're wrong. That's not the true God. How could they say that? They had already admitted that this God was unknown. What are they gonna say? We know it's not, uh, we don't know who he is, but we know it's not him. No, they they lost the ability to say that. They had no defense. Paul completely destroyed their defense. Now, as a result, everything changed. Some believed, some scoffed. Notice they didn't have any more arguments at this point. All they could do was scoff. And some said, we'll hear you about this again. Now, the original readers of this passage, as they're reading Acts, they would have been very encouraged by this passage because they were living around people who didn't believe the Bible was true, maybe never even heard what the Bible teaches. So they're reading this and they're going, oh, this is how we respond. Even to people who don't believe in the Bible, we still respond with biblical truth. What about for us today? Don't we know some people who don't believe the Bible is God's word? Aren't we sometimes tempted to think that God's word and God's truth is not enough? Aren't we sometimes tempted to come up with really smart philosophical arguments? Like, well, you you see, 
And don't we sometimes think that if we just can study the evidence enough and study the arguments enough that maybe we'll creatively be able to convince someone that God is real and Jesus is Lord? I'm not saying it's wrong to study the evidence. Study it, absolutely. I love the evidence for the truth of Christianity. But Paul comes with a much simpler approach. He shows them where they're being inconsistent in what they're already doing. And he says, let me tell you the truth. You believe in a higher power? Let me tell you about this higher power. You believe in God, but you don't really know him. You're spiritual, but not religious. Do we know anybody who says that? Let me tell you what true religion looks like. Let me tell you about the God who entered into this world, who became a man and died for our sins and rose again. So this passage shows us that we need to share biblical truth and the biblical truth will destroy disbelief. Paul did it with the Athenians, and we can do it today. Paul destroyed their delusions about God. God's not served by man. God does not live in in temples. Paul destroyed their defenses. God was not really unknown to them. They had no excuse. And Paul destroyed their despair. The Stoics and the Epicureans believed that history was going to continue on forever, that good was never really going to win, That good and evil would just battle it out for all eternity. Isn't that just a dismal outlook on life? Good's not going to win. All the wrongs will never be made right. It breaks my heart to even think about that. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to right every wrong. Everything that was wrong will be made right by the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. That is the hope that we have. My friends, that is the hope that we share with our neighbors who desperately need hope, especially this time of year. When we share biblical truth, it destroys despair and it destroys disbelief. Now, if you're not yet a a believer in Jesus Christ today, here's what you need to know. Maybe you believe in a higher power. Maybe you believe God is up there, but he's not that involved in your life or that he's let you down. Maybe you think that God's people have let you down. Guess what, we have, we have. That's why I'm so grateful that our hope is not in any man. Our hope is not in any individual. Our hope is not in an institution. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him yet today, I urge you to see the truth of the Bible. I urge you to realize that there will come a day when you will stand before God and you will give an account of every idle word you have spoken, Scripture says. And on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is not how often you went to church, although we're certainly glad you're here. It's not going to matter how many good deeds you did. All that's going to matter is, did you know Jesus Christ? Was he your Lord? Did you believe that he died for your sins? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you are a believer here today, here's why this matters when you walk out those doors. You are going to meet people, confront people, have conversations with people who don't believe in God, who don't believe in Jesus Christ. And you're gonna feel that anxiety well up within you because they don't believe in the Bible and you're gonna think, what do I share with them? They don't believe in God's word, what do I share? In that moment, here's what this passage instructs us to do. 
First of all, let that anxiety work its way. I'm not saying we should be anxious, cast your cares on the Lord, but Paul was anxious too in a certain way. He was provoked within him. It should provoke us to action when we see that someone does not believe in the Lord. So it's okay to be provoked, but then we need to turn that provocation towards God's word and we need to share biblical truth with our neighbors. Here's how that might look in practice. Practical example. Someone tells you, I could never believe in a God who would send someone to hell. Maybe you've heard this objection. I had a relative who who would say that. I could never believe in a God who would send someone to hell. Oh, okay, what do I do? How do I share a philosophical response? No, I'm gonna share with them and you should share with them what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is the judge of all the earth and the the judge of all the earth will do what is right. God is so holy that the only acceptable wages for sin is death. That is what hell is. Eternal death, punishment, the wrath of God, which is totally deserved for you and me. That's what the Bible says. But the very same verse, which I just quoted a second ago, that says the wages of sin is death, also says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if you hate the idea of going to hell, there is hope for you today. Trust in Jesus Christ. Do you see how biblical truth destroys disbelief? There are many such cases that we could give. If someone says, there's too much evil in the world, I could never believe in in God. That's despair. But we believe in a God who came down and fell victim to the evil in the world, willingly laying down his life, entering into our sorrow and pain. By his stripes, we are healed. We believe in a God who conquers death and pain and sickness, who can end a plague in Athens 2,600 years ago, and who can save you from your sin and despair and give you hope for the future today. Biblical truth destroys disbelief. God's word will accomplish his purposes. As Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Biblical truth always accomplishes God's purposes. Sometimes it hardens the believers, the unbeliever's heart even more, but they are not left the same. They may scoff, but they will not be left the same. Sometimes it destroys disbelief and turns to belief right away, and you get to see someone's life change before your eyes as they are born again. Other times it works slowly, causing the listeners to want to hear more, just like they did with Paul. Whatever the result, biblical truth is powerful. It destroys our delusions, our defenses, and our despair. It changes lives, it fulfills God's purposes. In all these ways, biblical truth destroys unbelief. Now, I mentioned the Hammer and Anvil Society earlier. And again, if family discipleship, family leadership is something that you want to explore and you want to do it in a community of brothers who are holding each other accountable, who are seeking to walk the journey and fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given us as Christian men, the Hammer and Anvil Society is for you. You can learn more about it and how much it costs, what the perks are, what the benefits are by going to thethink.institute slash society. Hope to see you there. And if you have any questions, please let me know at thethink.institute slash contact. Thank you for listening to Worldview Legacy. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, 
and is a production of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach nonprofit organization that seeks to help regular believers to become worldview leaders. And if you appreciate this work, would you please consider prayerfully and financially supporting this ministry? You can learn more about how to do that by going to thethink.institute slash partner. Until next time, stay based by God's grace.